Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Marshall Lichty. This is episode 182 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Hillary Bass about the state of the legal profession and the American Bar Association in 2018. Today's podcast is brought to you by LawPay, Ruby Receptionists, and New Law Business Model. We appreciate their support, and we will tell you more about them later in the show. Just a quick reminder, the new lab cohort will be launching early in August. You can find out more at lawyerist.com lab. If you are looking to improve your firm, if you're feeling stuck and you're trying to get out of a rut, or if you just want to know what it takes to build a successful, innovative firm in 2018, go to lawyerist.com lab, check it out, and we hope to see you in the lab. So Hillary Bass is going to be talking about the state of the ABA and its restructuring plan. So she's going to talk about what that's all about. Here's why I think you should care. Something we often don't talk about when it comes to the ABA is just how much it does and how huge it is. I mean, it regulates law schools. It creates the model rules for all kinds of things. It advocates for lawyers in so many ways. So this is what I don't really think about a whole lot, but Hillary's going to talk about it briefly. But for example, like let's say a legislative body or a regulatory body makes a rule that has the potential to infringe on the attorney-client privilege. Well, it's the ABA who shows up and says, hey, guys, you may not want to do that. And so I guess, you know, if the ABA falls apart and the tone of its, you know, reports on its membership are quite pessimistic about that, if nothing changes, if the ABA falls apart, who will do it if the ABA doesn't? Yeah, and I think one of the fair questions is whether that pricing change can save the ABA, right? So the way they've been talking about this, and Hillary Bass, to a certain extent, will talk about it, is that this really is an inflection point for the ABA and for their membership, which has been declining for quite some time, probably a decade at least. And we're curious to know if this kind of bet the organization strategic change will work. And that's an important question for a variety of reasons, and we should all care about it. So here's the gist of the pricing change, by the way. We don't go into the details later in the show, but the short version is... The pricing will be cut in about half for newer members and rise to a little less than it is now for older members. And the expectation that the ABA has is that this will arrest the decline in its membership and add about 100,000 members over the next six years, which is an increase of about uh, 150% of the membership that it otherwise expects to get. So it's a big difference, and uh, it's an interesting bet. And I think it feels a little optimistic, but I guess we'll see, and we're going to let Hillary talk more about it. We're going to get a brief sponsored conversation with Alexis Martinelli from New Law Business Model, and then we'll jump into my conversation with Hillary. Hi, everyone. This is Alexis Neely with New Law Business Model, and I am so glad to be here today to share with you a new way to practice law that allows you to love your life and your law practice, and let's dive into it. Hi, Alexis. Thanks for being with us. So you have been working with other lawyers on this new law business model thing for a while. And uh, you told me you've gone back and reviewed the successes and failures. Mm -hmm. And you've come up with, what, six things that the most successful lawyers have had in common. 
Yeah, actually five distinct shifts that I've noticed has led to the lawyers that I've worked with building high six and seven figure law practices as distinct from the lawyers that I've worked with who have not ended up going on to build high six and seven figure law practices and oftentimes just getting stuck at various places along the way. And I, you know, over the years, it's been, I think, gosh, over 12 years now of working with lawyers, hundreds of lawyers have, you know, come through my programs and I've worked with them privately and in groups. And I really wanted to identify what is it that makes the difference between success and not success? I don't want to call it failure because I think failure is actually really valuable. So I'll call it success and not success with yeah. the lawyers that I've worked with and came up with these five shifts. So what are the five shifts? Yeah. So I'm going to go through the five shifts really quickly because we only have a few minutes here and then you'll let everybody know where they can go more in detail with these five shifts to learn how to apply them to their own lives and law practices. So the first shift is operating with complete congruence. All of the most successful lawyers that I've worked with have recognized that their business is a mirror for their life and anything that they are doing in their own life is going to be reflected in their business. So for example, if you want clients who pay fast, you need to look at, do you pay fast? If you want clients who pay premium fees, you need to look at, are you trying to cheap out on paying for things in your own life or are you paying premiums for services that you appreciate and receive? And you've got to take a strategy of preeminence, taking full responsibility for your client's success making sure that you're the best at what you do. So that's, first of all, operating with complete congruence. And by the way, uh, if you do, for example, estate planning or business planning, do you have your own estate planning or business planning in place? The second shift is what we call the affordability paradox. And when you get it, it truly changes everything about the way you bill for your services. When you are serving the right people and you are providing your service in the right way, most of us have not learned how to do these things yet. I'll talk about it more in our masterclass training about how you can change that. Paying more for your services is actually in your client's best interest. So if you want to be the most affordable lawyer, paradoxically, you actually need to pay more so they get the best outcome, which turns out to be more affordable for them in the long run. So when you understand this, you can command premium fees, what we call affordable premium fees. The third shift is becoming strategically omnipresent in your community, becoming the go-to lawyer for the families that you serve. And we have a whole methodology for you to become omnipresent. So it seems like you are everywhere to your ideal clients. And it's a very strategic plan. Any lawyer can do it. If you identify clearly exactly who you serve and stop trying to serve everybody. And then the fourth shift is breaking the time barrier. And this means that you've got to shift away from hourly billing into flat fee and recurring revenue models uh, that allow you to build efficient systems and get paid sometimes 800, 1,000 or even more per hour not because your clients are paying you hourly, but because they're paying you a package price, affordable premium, like we talked about, for a service that you can deliver with a high value outcome really efficiently. And then finally is to invest in mentoring and stop trying to learn from the free listservs and free Facebook groups. I see you guys in there and you're trying to learn how to spend as little as money, how to invest as little as possible to build your practice rather than investing in the mentoring that you need to learn from the people who have done exactly what it is that you want to do. So this was a very fast uh, summary. <laughs> very fast. That um, last one really resonates though. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm glad. Yeah. It's, it frustrates me when I see 
lawyers who are trying to learn how to build businesses and learning from other lawyers who are also starving like they are. So so if you'd like to learn more about those five shifts than we were able to get to in this short, short amount of time, go to newlawbusinessmodel.com slash lawyerist. And Alexis has a 60-minute masterclass. And Alexis, you, I think some very early uh, congratulations are in order because you are launching your own podcast in a couple of months, right? The Ultimate Attorney Podcast. That's right. We will have the Ultimate Attorney Podcast that will guide lawyers through what it takes to be an ultimate attorney and really love your life and your law practice. All right. We'll stay tuned for that. Thanks, Alexis. Thank you. Hello, this is Hillary Bass. I'm the president of the American Bar Association and co-president of Greenberg Traurig. I'm based in Miami and I'm a commercial litigator. Hi, Hillary. Thanks so much for being with us today. My pleasure. We want to talk to you more about your position as ABA president, but I'm interested to hear a little bit more about your own practice at Greenberg. Uh, I think you've been there most of your career, right? I have been here since I was a summer associate. (laughs) Very cool. And what's your focus there? I do commercial litigation, trial work, typically on the defense side, lots of class action defense and lots of D&O representation. So most of our listeners are going to be solo and small firm lawyers. But I'm curious to know when you become co-president of, I think, a fairly huge firm like Greenberg Traurig, what does the presidential responsibility mean? What does your job look like? Well, it's very different depending on, you know, over the course of my time in that position. But my main focus is working with the practice groups throughout the firm. I used to be the chair of the litigation practice group, which at the time had about 600 members. It was our largest group and continues to be. So Mm -hmm. I have a lot of experience in how to organize a large group of people to try and march in the same direction. And is that the kind of thing where you just have to do that on top of all of your other responsibilities? Or do you get some leeway on that? I do a little less legal work to give me the opportunity I need to spend focusing on those managerial tasks. And of course, this year, most of my focus has been on the American Bar Association. So that's been (laughs) a significant basis of how I spend my time. I'm curious. So as the ABA president, I mean, how much time does that take and what's involved in being the president? It's about 120% of my time. (laughs) I literally have been traveling five to six days a week. I think during May and June, I was home three or four nights. So people say, well, why is that? What is it you're doing? And so it's a combination of a lot of different things. On the one hand, I want to be available to bar associations, law schools, and other legal networks that want me to come and talk about either ABA initiatives, issues of independence of the judiciary, or other issues that bar associations or the legal profession is facing. Technology, for example, has been Mm -hmm. a big focus this year. But I'm also invited across the world to make similar presentations as well as to focus on rule of law issues. So, for example, I was in Poland to talk to the Supreme Court about some of the legislative changes that were made there that many believe seriously undercut the independence of the judiciary. This past weekend, I was in Puerto Rico talking to the legal service providers on the ground as to how the American Bar Association could assist in providing legal relief to hurricane victims. 
Hmm. You know, every week is different based on what the needs of the legal community are. But uh, as you can imagine, it's just been a fascinating opportunity for me over the course of this past year to focus on a broad range of issues. What's something about the ABA that you think most lawyers who aren't necessarily engaged with the ABA would be surprised to learn? Well, I think most people don't realize how many things we do for the benefit of the profession. Yeah. Uh, Most people know that the ABA writes the ethics rules, the model code of ethics, vets judicial candidates who are going to get federal lifetime appointments and accredits law schools. But one of the things I've been doing this year is when I go to a major city is meet with the managing partners of law firms to talk about things like negotiating with Homeland Security about their prior rule that basically said anytime a lawyer crossed the border, a border agent could look through their laptop or their phone, Mm -hmm. even though they said this has attorney-client information. So that's something we've been working very heavily on and, in fact, have negotiated some significant restrictions on what those people can do is once a lawyer indicates that there's attorney-client information that should not be disclosed to any third party. Hmm. We work with The FTC, for example, when they have regulations that are broadly written so that they would apply to lawyer trust accounts to change the rules to ensure that they understand that lawyer trust accounts are not like a bank account and we should not have to disclose who the beneficial owner is of those accounts or what the purpose of those funds is. Um, You know, we negotiate with the AICPA as to what kind of disclosures lawyers have to make, giving legal opinions about underlying litigation that are the basis for litigation set-asides that show up on a balance sheet. Mm -hmm. So there are all kinds of things that we engage in every day that deal with issues that lawyers don't even realize we're solving for them. Very cool. So we're hoping to start meeting with the ABA president, hopefully annually, as sort of a take a look at the state of the legal profession and and give the ABA a chance to talk more directly to the profession. So if you had to start talking about the state of the legal profession in 2018, as you near the end of your tenure, how would you start talking about what the state is? Well, I think the state is a positive one in -hmm. that I believe that much of the American public, for example, has a higher view of the legal profession today than they have in many, many years. And I think that's the result of realizing that our democracy is not (laughs) self-executing. And but for lawyers running into court, whether it's state attorney generals arguing about an executive order or lawyers in airports or in detention centers offering free legal services to immigrants, the democracy doesn't work. It needs to be protected. And one of the ways it is protected is by lawyers going out there and filing legal actions and taking legal suits or seeking injunctions. And I think there's a real recognition that lawyers have an important role to play. And I also think that's one of the explanations for why law school applications jumped eight and a half percent this year. You know, I I haven't seen any like the mood of the country on lawyers uh, updates lately, but it seems to me that you're right that um, lawyers have had some really good opportunity to portray themselves in a very positive light over the last few years. So, yeah, I think maybe you're right about that. Correct. And and I think lawyers are now seen as something other than just people who want to amass wealth. <laughs> that they do have an important role to play in our democracy. That's interesting. So that's a positive. Yeah. Um, that being said, I think there are ongoing challenges for practitioners at all levels. I think many people think that 
the legal profession will transform more in the next 10 years than it has in the last 200. Mm. And that poses challenges for lawyers at all levels, whether it's solo and small firm practitioners who perceive that they're going to be competing with legal technologists and online suppliers of legal information and are wondering how they're going to survive. Two, at the other end of the spectrum, the very large global firms who realize their clients are now saying, well, we're only going to give you this piece of this deal because our accountants are going to do due diligence and this third-party company is going to do the discovery. And, oh, by the way, we already have a contract with this deposition service to do any depositions. Mm -hmm. So it's a very, very different environment that young lawyers will find themselves having to navigate. So at Codex, the Stanford Law School um, Legal Technology one-day conference earlier this year, you delivered the opening keynote and you talked about how, well, you described the profession as stuck and when it comes to the future of legal services. And I'd like you to explain what you meant, um, how we are stuck, and talk about some of the things that you and the ABA and the profession uh, need to do to get themselves unstuck. Sure. So I suggest that the profession is stuck because we all know that at least 80% of our population does not have access to legal services. Some because they don't realize the problem they're dealing with every day is legal in nature. But for most, it's the fact that they do not have the money to pay a lawyer to solve their problem. And for many, many years, lawyers have been focused on how we ensure that it's only lawyers that provide legal services and that any shift in regulations that would create opportunities for non-JD lawyers to provide any of those services would be problematic. Well, I suggest that the whole definition of what practicing law is, is at a really a, a point of no return because merely the recitation of what the law is, is no longer an adequate definition of what a lawyer does. I mean, Siri and Google can tell a consumer what the law on X is in their state. So clearly being a lawyer means doing something other than that. Now, that being said, we all recognize that our regulations continue to be very, very restrictive. And I use the example at Codex of Uber and Lyft that came into many cities in blatant violation of many of the existing regulations that applied for taxis and other similar ride-sharing services. And what happened? Um, they were serving a need. They were serving a need at a cost people appreciated. And so when many local municipalities tried to regulate them after the fact— what occurred was an uproar from the consumers who said, wait a minute, we want this service, we like this service, and in fact, please keep your hands off of them. Well, I fear if legal regulators are not more forward-thinking in suggesting how can we adapt legal technology to serve some of the needs of that 80% of our community that does not currently have access to lawyers, that we're inviting legal technologists and others to jump in and potentially violate existing regulations, but provide a real service that people want. And I think it will be very, very difficult for lawyers after the fact to try and put that genie back in the bottle. You know, you've touched on a really interesting point that some of us really argue about sometimes, which is it seems access to lawyers is just one aspect of access to justice. 
and maybe this is uncomfortably close to where bar associations are a little bit trade union and a little bit in the business of protecting the public. And so the question is, is access to lawyers an integral part of access to justice or is it one small part? And we shouldn't panic if we see other companies sort of ending around the legal profession in order to provide legal solutions. Well, I think access to lawyers is a very significant piece for access to justice. That being said, we know certain things are true. If you look at the statistics in in the family law area, for example, we know that well over 50% of people undergoing a divorce choose to do it without a lawyer. Now, they may be choosing because they don't have the money, or they may be choosing because they do have the money, but they fear that a lawyer might complicate it and make the process more problematic. But simple things like many courts around the country that now have kiosks where people coming in and saying, I have a simple divorce, we have an agreement on custody, everything's worked out, what are the forms I need to go through this process on my own? We know a very significant percentage of people are taking advantage of those type of kiosks. In fact, I was in Tampa and they arranged for volunteer lawyers to have their own little office in the courthouse, and lawyers would come in and spend a couple of hours on a rotating basis just to go over the people's forms that they filled out. People would be able to say, did I do this right? And in five minutes, somebody could look over the forms and say, yes, you did it right. Go ahead and file them. Now, we know that those people were not going to be paying for lawyers under any circumstances. So they were either going to be utilizing the services that were being provided at the courthouse to expedite their effort. Or they were going to go clog up the whole judicial system because they were going to go through with forms that were not done right or having pulled forms off the Internet, which didn't necessarily apply to them. And that just makes work for everybody, for the clerk of the court, for the judge that had to throw them out and tell them to come back, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we need to be thinking in terms of where are there opportunities to help people who can't afford a lawyer And then how do we create opportunities for low bono lawyers, meaning for lawyers who, for a limited amount of money, are prepared to provide legal assistance, but at nothing like the annual rates or the hourly rates that many lawyers would insist upon getting. How does that tension between sort of, you know, lawyers keeping their work, keeping UPL strong play out, do you think, among the membership? I I know a couple years ago, maybe it was only a year ago, the ABA, the membership body was voting on whether or not to allow non-lawyer ownership. And at least from the outside looking in, I wasn't able to be there. From the outside looking in, um, the vote failed. And the reason why smacked of protectionism protecting lawyers, that is, not protecting the public. And that felt kind of icky for me as a lawyer. And I'm just wondering, like, how you think that those balances between trying to do things that don't involve lawyers, but nevertheless increase access to justice play out on the ABA side among the membership? I think the issue on non-lawyer ownership is in part trade protectionist, but there are lots of ethicists out there who will tell you there are other very legitimate concerns about conflict of interest, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. that also play into it. But for the American Bar Association, we recognize that we have a critical goal of narrowing the justice gap. And so about a year ago, the House of Delegates voted on regulatory principles. And the concept of the regulatory principles was to give them to each of the state bars as a starting point for how do you think through these alternative regulations for non-lawyer practice? 
And it didn't say whether we were advocating for it or not, but we were suggesting that any time you talk about providing legal-type services to the public, you should be concerned about ensuring that there are not conflicts, that the person is independent, that the person, you know, all the basic underlying principles that support the practice of law, but trying to broaden the concept so that it's not always in terms of, well, if they don't have a JD, there's nothing else to talk about. No, actually, there are lots of services that we know people need that do not require JDs. Mm -hmm. And in order to give the framework to the chief justices, we created this list of regulatory principles that had been adopted by a number of states. So I want to, I, I can feel myself wanting to slip into a regulatory rabbit hole, but instead, <laughs> let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, I want to hear more about some of the internal restructuring at the ABA and, and what that means for membership and dues. So we'll be right back. Did you know that attorneys who accept online payments get paid 39% faster on average than those using traditional payment methods? With LawPay, the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, you can accept client payments online, via email, or in person. No equipment needed. Visit lawpay.com lawyerist to sign up and get your first three months free. Trust the only payment solution developed for attorneys and recommended by 47 state bars. LawPay. Support for today's episode comes from Ruby Receptionists, dedicated to helping you grow your practice one happy caller at a time. From their offices in Portland, Oregon, Ruby's remote receptionists work in tandem with their innovative technology to answer your calls live with your custom greeting, transfer calls through to you when and where you want, collect new client intake and messages, make follow-up calls, and more. Delighting your callers in English and Spanish, just like an in-house receptionist at a fraction of the cost. Ruby integrates with Clio, Rocket Matter, and Lexicata, as well as the contacts and calendar on your cell phone to easily integrate into your workflow. Ruby can host your local phone number or provide you with one, giving you the opportunity to make dual use of your phone. Call clients using your office or personal number as you please via the Ruby mobile app. For over 15 years, thousands of attorneys have been turning rings into relationships with Ruby receptionists. To learn more, call 844-715-7829 or visit callruby.com slash lawyerist2018. Alexis Neely has been training lawyers on the new law business model she created to build her million-dollar law practice for more than 10 years. Over that time, she saw that some lawyers were hugely and immediately successful with it, and others spun their wheels, never getting anywhere. Just recently, she decided to figure out what made the difference. After reviewing all of her clients' successes and failures, as well as her own, she identified five shifts that were the common denominator among all the lawyers who today have high six- and seven-figure law practices they love. To learn what she discovered and apply it to your life and law practice, go to newlawbusinessmodel.com lawyerist. Hey, one more thing before we get back to the conversation. If you haven't already taken the small firm scorecard and you are a solo or small firm lawyer, do it now at go.lawyerist.com scorecard. Look, you listen to this podcast, so you must know the practice of law is changing in important ways. And sooner or later, you are going to feel the effects of those changes in your practice if you aren't feeling them already. So what's your plan? If you are like most of the lawyers we've met over the years, even if you understand the trends shaping the past, present, and future of law practice, you probably don't have a plan. You may not even be sure where to start. So that's why we put together the Small Firm Scorecard, to help lawyers understand what they need to do to position their firm to be successful in the future. It's a free self-assessment. 50 questions for small firms, 40 for solos. The questions cover your goals, strategy, systems, marketing, client service model, finances, and people and staffing. 
It only takes about 10 minutes, and at the end, you'll know exactly what you need to work on based on your own assessment of how you're doing on each item. Like I said, it's free, it takes about 10 minutes, and you'll end up with a to-do list to prepare your firm for the future. So take it now at go.lawyerist.com scorecard. Okay, we're back. So Hillary, it seems to me like the ABA has been restructuring and, you know, the way its divisions and, and things are organized, but also it's changing its approach to membership and dues. And so maybe you could tell us what the story behind that is and what the goal is. Sure. Well, as you know, the American Bar Association has been in existence since the late 1800s. And I felt, and many of the other ABA leaders felt, that it was time to sort of refresh how we do things to ensure that we were creating the greatest value for our members, we continued to be relevant for our members, and that we made sure that whatever membership dollars we have are used as efficiently as possible. So we've done that on multiple fronts. Um, One thing you'll see is in the very near future, hopefully by August, we'll be rolling out a completely new website. And that website will look much refreshed and will give people who are on it the ability to search throughout the ABA's 3,500 entities for information they want. It will allow us to, for example, have you buy a book or register for a conference with you know, all the typical things that you would expect from any other organization in 2018 mm-hmm. as far as pre-populating information and making, facilitating the whole user experience. But we also recognize that young lawyers have a very different view of large organizations like the American Bar Association than older lawyers. Most of the baby boomers, they began to join the ABA their first year out of law school. And every year, like clockwork, somebody, probably not them, paid those membership dues. Right. Today, what we're facing is very few firms pay any kind of membership dues other than the single bar that you need to practice. And many young lawyers are faced with multiple opportunities. Should I join the local bar? Should I join my you know, ethnic bar? Should I join my gender-based bar? And so we recognized we needed to get the information about what we do and its value very differently. So for example, What we know is that the structure of sections and divisions made a lot of sense for the last 50 years or so, but for a young lawyer who is looking for help for their practice, they want to go in and put in a search term and not be hit with 50 different paywalls. Oh, well, you're not a member of the legal practice section. You can't access our evaluation of the best software program for young lawyers. So what we're trying to do is eliminate that and have a basic membership model which will, on the one hand, be less expensive, and on the other hand, provide access to digital content across the platform. So rather than saying, well, you know, I just want to know one question that's covered by this business law journal, I don't want to have to join business law section, as great as it may be, but that's not what I do. So what we're doing is creating an environment where people will pay a base price and will get access to a certain amount of digital content throughout the platform. And then only if they want a significant amount of information would there be a need for them to join a section. So I would want to be a member of litigation because that's what I do and that's the kind of information I want to receive every day. But in the meantime, if I have a single question about what kind of computer I should buy for my solo practice, I can access all of that on the website. Is that a bit like the New York Times? You know, you get three free articles a month or something like that? It's, it's similar in yeah. concept. 
Everybody <laughs> understands that at some point you should pay. That being said, a lot will be free to our members. So if you were projecting out 10 years, and I think we you mentioned this a little bit at the beginning, but what do you see as being the things that are really different about the ABA in 10 years and maybe what how those relate to what the profession looks like in 10 years? Well, I think the ABA will look very different in 10 years. I think members will be accustomed to a self-curated set of information. So just like every other website that you go on, if I show an interest in information on tax law, health care, and IP, I will, instead of being inundated with 50 emails from multiple sources, I will have a self-curated email that comes and says, well, we noticed you're interested in these three topics. This is what's happening in the ABA. These are the free CLEs you may be interested in. It will be unique to each member, and we think it's going to be a huge benefit. The great news is we have so much incredible content. The challenge is people have difficulty figuring out what it is that's going to be valuable for them. So we're going to try and assist in that process by helping them to figure out what we have that will be of value to them. I realize I'm asking you to look in a crystal ball here, but when you think about the profession itself in 10 years, is there anything that really stands out to you as something that will be really different about the profession? Well, I think the focus on unbundling of legal representation will continue in a big way. So rather than going to one law firm and expecting that from soup to nuts, whether it's litigation or transaction, you're going to only deal with your singular lawyer. I think there'll be much more of a team approach where you have the least expensive people available to you, depending on what it is that meets your legal needs. Let's close with this. What's your best pitch to younger lawyers, solo and small firm lawyers who may not be members of the ABA? What's your best pitch to them for why they ought to join? The American Bar Association is the only organization that has the interests of the entire profession as its focus. And what's unique about the ABA is whatever your practice area is, we have the practice area experts that can help you develop your practice, both through free CLE, networking with experts, having the ability to meet the leaders in your particular practice area. There's nobody that has the depth of knowledge and expertise than the American Bar Association. Thanks so much for being with us today, Hillary. It's my pleasure. Pleasure talking to you. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced with help from Lindsay Calhoun and edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. Oh,